0: Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the diverse worlds of regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gauthier, and I'm thrilled to guide you through this week's episode, so let's jump right in. Society publisher's books are so green you could eat them. We print all our books in North America, never overseas, on a hundred percent post-consumer recycled paper. We've been a carbon neutral company since 2006. Our employees are shareholders and we are a certified B Corporation. At New Society we care deeply about what we publish but also about how we do business. Find out more at newsociety.com All right everybody. Before I get started with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about a new project that I've just launched. Now after years of highlighting and promoting the knowledge, wisdom, and projects of innovators and leaders in regenerative living through this podcast, I've realized that this audio format can only ever reach so many people. There are so many others out there who engage more with other forms of learning. That's why I've started the Abundant Edge YouTube channel. Now that I'm back on the road and visiting regenerative and sustainable projects in my travels. I'll be profiling the people and organizations that are making a real impact on their environments and their communities. My goal is to show as many people as I can reach that you don't have to have a lot of money, access to a ton of resources, or have a fancy education under your belt to make a real difference in this world and create change. Now my first mini documentary highlights the unbelievable achievements of a small community called Quixaya in the highlands of Guatemala. More than 30 years ago, the land where the village is located was owned by a plantation owner who kept the ecosystem under monoculture cultivation and exploited the local people who worked for slave wages on the farm. After the owner defaulted on his loans, the bank repossessed the land and offered it back to the local workers as payment for the wages owed to them. The villagers then redistributed their terrain among the original 80 families who took back control of the plantation and divided it equally between themselves so they might care for it and create a better life for their families. Now decades later the descendants of these pioneers have helped to transform the land into a profound abundance which you'll see in the documentary. Now if you want to see the rest you'll have to check it out for yourself. You can find it really easily just by typing in Abundant Edge into the YouTube search bar, and be sure to keep an eye out for more short films highlighting the projects that I visit as I travel through Mexico and beyond. I'll also be releasing tutorials on everything from design theory to building and gardening techniques in the upcoming months. I really hope that this will become a resource that, like the podcast, helps to inspire you to live your highest potential by living regeneratively. Alright, today we're back with Eric Olson founder of both Permaculture Artisans, one of the preeminent ecological landscaping companies in the US, and the Permaculture Skills Center, a vocational training school that offers advanced education in ecological design, landscaping, farming, and land stewardship. Eric is also the author of several books, including The Forest of Fire, Activate Your Joy, and most recently, The Ecological Landscape Designer, an essential manual for anyone aspiring to make a living in eco-design. Now, Though it's long overdue, I spoke with Eric to get a better understanding of the intensity of the wildfires that have dominated current events around this increasingly extended fire season that affects more and more acreage, especially in the western United States every year. Eric explains how fire can actually be a regenerative force for the ecology of many forests and how the indigenous people of the western United States have managed fires strategically for thousands of years. We talk about how communities can work together to manage the risks of their ecosystems and avoid the catastrophic damage that fires have caused in previous years. We also explore some of the wisdom and lessons that Eric has learned in more than 20 years running his permaculture landscaping business, and the challenges of meeting clients' needs while including the holistic health considerations of nature. Like many of the more seasoned and experienced professionals that I've had the pleasure of speaking to on this show, Eric shies away from making specific recommendations for techniques or designs, and rather encourages people to cultivate a deeper understanding of their place and context, before making assumptions about how to manage their land or even businesses. This is a great episode for people looking to better understand fire-prone ecologies, but also for people who enjoy the challenge of considering a deeper understanding of their relationship to natural systems in general. So before I give it all away, I'll hand things over now to Eric. Hey Eric, it's so great to be talking to you again. How you been?
1: I've been great. Thanks so much for having me back on the show.
0: Hey, it's my pleasure and I'm also really glad that you recovered from your neck injury recently.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that was a strange one, but uh, here we are.
0: Here we are. So (laughs) rather than having you talk about your background the way we did last time, I'm going to refer people back to that original episode where you explained a lot about how you started out as an activist and then started to realize that you could be more effective in, in the private sector. But let's talk today about some things that are very relevant to your place in time um, on the coastal area of California, and that's the subject of fires. Especially in the last couple of years, they have kind of compounded based on some things that have happened with drought and rain cycles. Can you give us a little bit of a context as to how we're uh, dealing with fire landscapes and how it's changed over the last couple of decades?
1: Absolutely. And I'll just note that even right at this moment, when I look to the north, normally I have a view of the mountains. And currently, as of this morning, uh, it's totally smoked in from a fire that's happening in Southern Oregon. So smoke travels a very long way. And this is becoming the, the norm here in California. Um, we all have our respirator masks uh, near and ready. Um, Few times over the last couple of years, I might it's like go out to work, and by the time I come home, it's fog, it's smoke and it's ash, and we're stuck inside. Um, in fact, even the school districts and my kids um, who are in middle school, uh, we now have uh, school days that are closed. Schools closed on smoke days, and schools are now preparing each year. Um, to close extra days every year uh, due to smoke. So, so we're this is becoming a normalized situation, and it's really increased just in the last few years. Really, since the major drought hit, um, which was about five years ago, we went into a major drought, um, which currently is not the current situation due to the the heavy rains we had this last winter. Um, most reservoirs and lakes are at capacity, and snowpack is thick, but. It's all exacerbated by the changing in climate, the heating of the planet, the shifting of water temperature in the ocean in the way that that affects wind currents, and these events are getting more and more extreme, and they're also compounded by the fact that we have a, a boring beetle infestation in many of our forests, so because of the drought, the boring beetle they're the beetles that go in there and they um they can basically kill the tree, even in, just in one year. <coughs> they, when it, during the drought years, they spread very fast. They reproduce um, very quickly. So a lot of different aspects to how, what's kind of set up this crisis. And another part of the crisis, and probably where it all began, was when we shifted our relationship with fire, maybe about 100 years ago, from a relationship that the native people of these lands have always had, which is, which is that fire is a regenerative tool to uh, renew the land um, versus what um, Western culture has been doing the last hundred years, which is suppressing fire. And, uh, and what's happened is the forests have become congested, congested with dead and dying wood. Um, they the, the number of trees per acre has increased uh, tenfold, hundredfold in some places. And this, this is what we call fuel load. And this fuel load, um, once it ignites it, the fires burn quickly up into the canopy of the forest. And as soon as once the canopy erupts, we've got um, embers and firestorms and, you know, we've seen the news over the last few years and we've seen um, the devastating effect that has on communities. So, so this is, this is the new normal in the West. And the, the, the beautiful aspect of this is that cities and counties and governments and, um, and, the, and the citizenry is waking up to not only the crisis, but the context that we've been talking about here. And there are some very promising new uh, processes. Like here in my county, Sonoma County, we got hit by the big fire in 2017, the Tubbs Fire. Um, which burned over 5,000 structures and um, had a devastating effect on our community. And now the county is, we're doing prescribed burns. Um, I was down at my local park um, just the other day. There's sheep in there grazing on public lands right now to mitigate fuel load. Um, So there's a lot of positive action being taken place from from an ecological point of view um, that hopefully will be the growing trend throughout all of our communities. And we can really kind of get to the next the next stage of, of managing
0: these that's really encouraging to hear i know when i started to learn more about this after some of the devastating fires of the previous uh, years a lot of the conclusions that i had read about including through your blog were somewhat counterintuitive from what i might have guessed otherwise because the the last one that you mentioned it was the tubs fire yeah in 2017 came after the rain sort of returned after a drought period and i thought that that was going to be more of a help in preventing large fires like this but it caused a lot of underbrush growth very rapidly in an area that had previously been uh sort of stunted because of the lack of moisture and when the summer came back in there was that much more like you said fuel load For fires, which had not been managed sort of periodically and in a controlled fashion. And these types of things kind of start to accumulate again. And also the introduction of non-native species, specifically, I believe it's eucalyptus trees and how much those can add to large fires. Can you talk about some of these other things that are perhaps, uh, I guess, non-intuitive or could be contradictory to most people's thinking about how fires come about and and perhaps are managed.
1: Sure, um, I mean the first point there about the the increase in underbrush relative to heavy rains that that was a a big issue, and it's kind of this perfect storm that happens. And my, my, one of my my native friends, Redbird, taught me a lot about this after the Tubbs fire, a lot about how when you have that heavy, a heavy winter with a lot of spring growth, and then you have a hot summer, and then you get um, what we might call the Diablo winds, or in Southern California, they may call them the Santa Ana winds, um, which are an eastern wind that is pulling warm, dry air from from inland areas and, and blowing across the land, um, blowing this hot air, almost like a blow dryer. That is this, this combination that creates these firestorms. And one of the things that Redbird taught me was that actually the native communities here in this area literally have a word for that wind. And they've that word has been passed down generation after generation for 10,000 years. Um, and they actually have a name for each one of these fires, uh, because I think that this is some, this is an important point that I think a lot of folks don't realize is that a lot of the fire zones where these big fires are happening, while the scale and speed and devastation is unprecedented because of the fuel load and de- human development and fire suppression and all these things, the the fires themselves, the locations, and the fact that they are erupting. Is, is is not a new precedent at all. In fact, um, Native people have been tracking these fires for 10,000 years, to the point that they actually have names for these fires. Uh, so one of, the, one of the, the illusions we have to dispel is that one, that we can stop the fire from coming. Um, we just need to let go of that notion 100% complete. We're not gonna stop fire from coming into a ecological system that has evolved with fire for tens of thousands of years. Th- those are natural phenomenons, just like a geyser would be a natural phenomenon. And so it's just about the time intervals of understanding, you know, when these mega fires in, you know, what's the history. And that's where we need to look to our native communities to to learn and understand what the history of these fires are beyond our Western um, uh, r- records and and back into those those deeper, land-based knowledge of these fires. So for one, we can't stop the fires from coming, but they are unprecedentedly huge and devastating because of the the context. Um, And and we want to be aware of the buildup of fuel load. We want to be aware of the patterns of climate so that we can really predict um, uh, when an area is going to go up in flames. And and it's actually not as hard as it sounds if we take the time to to learn the story of place and we take the time to understand a bit more about about the role that fire has in the community. And another piece that I think is kind of paradoxical or that we may not understand is that after a fire comes through, that doesn't actually mean that that area that was burned is now safe from a fire again. Uh, In fact, we're noticing in some areas after the Tubbs fire, in Santa Rosa, that some of those areas are growing up very, very thick with uh, scotch broom, which is an invasive um, opportunistic plant in our area, and uh, and other plants that will go up in flames pretty quickly, very flashy fuel loads. And they're growing in very thick and very congested. And when I consult with the fire ecologists about this, they say, yeah, really, we should be Prescribe burning those zones the next year after the first big wildfire. So as we start to unpack what it means to be in a relationship with fire and to understand this, um, it uh, you know, first and foremost is that we need fire in the, in this, in these ecologies. And so we need to sort of embrace its role and then control the, the, the intensity by using prescribed burn strategies to burn these areas at the right time of year in a controlled manner that will, that will help manage these fuels and help that regrowth, um, help manage that regrowth in such a way that we're not just allowing a, um, another massive fuel load um, growth to, to happen. And, and, and one more example, uh, um, we're kind of waiting for a, a, an area near where I live, the, the hills of Casadero, sort of like that's due to burn um there was a big fire there in 1978 or 79 that burned those ridges and when you go into those when you go look at that forest now it's highly congested with tan oak a lot of dying dying tan oak and it's just ripe for burning and part of the part of the issue there is that all that sprouted up really dense and thick after that last big fire So these aren't things that are going to go away, and it's really a year-by-year management. It's not like we can just wait 10 years to to look at these systems again. So we really have to incorporate into into how we manage our landscapes, how we develop, how we build our communities. Fire has to have a place uh, inside if we want to live in these ecologies.
0: Let's go back to something that you said a minute ago about how fires can be managed for the regeneration of landscapes and how right after one of these burns occurs, right now there are opportunistic or some would call them invasive species from originally from other parts of the world that are finding niches in these damaged or disturbed ecosystem and and kind of running amok. How can those either be leveraged for something positive or replaced by something further along in the succession to restore a healthy ecosystem over the ashes of the uh, the disturbed landscape
1: so the first thing that we need to realize is that these fires and their and and the vegetative growth that follows them is going to be different from ridge to ridge and valley to valley so Um, It makes it more complex and and it causes us to become real people of the land because there really is not one prescription that is, you know, there's not a one size fits all approach. And so we really have to take the time to read each ridge and each valley um, to understand what's going to be the appropriate response to that particular zone. Um, Like some areas have the scotch broom growing up thick and other areas are just full of native bunch grasses and wildflowers and, and, and the beauty of, of what the fire has brought to those areas is, is really apparent. So, um, so first off, let's, let's just remember that one of the roles that fire fires are what we might call a regenerative disturbance. It's actually one of the great nutrient cyclers of the ecosystem. And when a fire rolls through, it changes the pH. It, um, it produces a lot of potassium potash. So it's one of the ways that we actually renew potassium in the environment. Um, it takes out a lot of dead and diseased species so, kind of cleans the slate from a from a disease point of view, and um, and many of the species, the native species, uh, actually need fire to grow. Many seeds. Uh, need the heat in order to sprout um, so so a lot of the land has evolved with fire and, and and when the fire comes through, these beautiful processes can take place where new diverse species sprout they 've been waiting for fire now that 's their chance where uh, where the strong, healthy plants that were able to burn back in the fire and they have those deep root systems they can now sprout with space and grow and thrive um, so, th- so these are some of the benefits and that we get that nutrient load and that potassium and, and all that nutrient cycling is is great um, so so we've got to so we've got to take each zone and and look at the benefits or, or effects of fire in that zone and and then help manage for them um, so then, the, so then the other aspect of that is, well, then how do we as a species, as, as major changers of the environment, how, how do we uh, show up for this? And, um, and how do we manage, manage the new growth? And so some of the tools in the toolkit here are um, managed grazing is definitely a tool in the toolkit. And we have to remember that a lot of these ecosystems evolved for tens of thousands of years with elk, antelope, bear Um, and, and these species are no longer, um, thriving in these ecosystems and they, and they were fuel load managers. Mm -hmm. Um, so one of the things that we can do right off the bat is use our domesticated animal patterns of, um, sheep, goats, cows, um, in a managed rotational holistic way to mimic the patterns of elk and antelope and bear, um, to help to help reduce fuel loads. So that's one. The other one about specific about the invasive species, and one of my friends and mentors, Penny Livingston, um, she's made a really good point on this, which is that a lot of these um, opportunistic invasive species are really functional. They, you know, they're 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 species that we could harvest for. F- for our own fuel, for our own fiber needs, our own building needs, some of them are medicinal, some of them are edible and um, and we 've talked at length about a intensive management of these invasive plants, not through a demonistic viewpoint that, Oh, these are horrible. These are bad. we got to get rid of them. Let's just, let's just bomb them with glyphosate um, and kill them off. But more from the point of view is of, well, what functions and uses do they have in our communities? What kinds of resources can they provide us? And if we look at them from the resource lens um, now we have species we can harvest heavily um, which enables natives to now to then take over those niches as we pull, as we harvest and pull out these invasives, but let's use them. Let's create industry. Let's create economy. Let's, let's create medicine and, and, and fiber that we can localize um, these resources by heavily harvesting uh, those invasives. And, the, and I think that's a beautiful win-win function stack problem is a solution approach to looking at um, the role that these invasives play. And, and then we also have to context this within the overall shifting climate, the overall shifting of uh, weather patterns, um, which is more or less the trend is warm weather is moving north. And so as warm weather moves north, some of these species, which may, may or may not be native, may, may have better adaptable qualities to a new kind of climate regime. And so they may provide erosion control functions or they might be providing forage for bees and insects at times of the year when other things aren't. So we really have to weigh and balance all of this. And, and then back to the original point is that there's no one size fits all. This is really a ridge to ridge, valley to valley, meadow to meadow approach to look at what the, what's going on in any one place. What's the story of that place? And what what is the beneficial management regimes that are necessary in that place?
0: Yeah, I completely agree with that approach. I really like what you said about finding an economy or use for the invasive species that we've otherwise treated as something that needs to be eradicated rather than something that has inherent value in it and is most likely serving uh, a use in the succession of whatever plants are going to go after that, either in tilling or refertilizing the soil in some cases, or you know, depending on the plant, there's a lot of different functions that they might serve. Now, we've mostly been talking about the recovery of fairly wild or less actively cultivated landscapes. What about the, let's say, the more actively managed ones, human landscapes, lawns in particular, or public spaces? Are there ways that we can start to manage those, especially in your area, that would have a healthier relationship with these fire cycles we just mentioned?
1: So, for our communities, the urban areas, the suburban areas um, there's a, a pretty prescriptive approach to protecting our communities from fire first first thing that needs to be said is follow the advice of your local fire department, and one of the things here 's a few of the things that that they suggest one is a hundred foot defensible space, so essentially what that means is that hundred feet around your house where you live make sure that you don't have excessive fuel load. So if you've got a forest, um, you might want to manage the understory of that forest. If there's dead or dying branches or trees, remove them. Often we limb up our trees so that they are you know, maybe 10 feet off the ground before you hit the first branch. Because when when a fire comes, you know, often a fire starts on the ground. And if we can keep it from going up into the canopy, that's the best case scenario. Then we have a low intensity healing type fire that kind of burns across the surface um, without catching the canopy and and burning trees down. That being said, uh, Coffee Park, which got decimated in the Tubbs fire in 2017, One of the patterns that we saw was um, when you look at those photos or you go through that community, which is now being rebuilt, it was pretty apparent that the trees in that community were not setting the houses on fire. In fact, it was the opposite, that most of the trees that got burned down in Coffee Park were burned because they were near a house. The house caught fire and then burned the tree down. And most trees that weren't up against houses didn't actually burn. Um, So that was a really interesting pattern to see that, you know, the trees around your house, trees around your property, they're not necessarily the problem. And in most cases, it's the houses themselves that are the biggest fuel load tinder boxes ready to go up. After the Tubbs fire, we had a neighborhood uh, gathering here in, in my neighborhood and where we had about 50 families and folks that live around here. And we're, we're all living on one to two acre properties. And we had um, one, a fire, a battalion chief come out and meet with us for a couple hours. That was really eye opening. And what he said that we need to do is you really need to go around your house and identify any places where embers can ignite around your house it might be around a deck it might be a little shed um that has you know gas cans in it it might be the vents in your house it might be um dry leaves you know right around the base of your house and really look for, you know, when the embers blow in because the fire is spread first and foremost through the movement of embers, hot embers, and they usually blow ahead of the fire. Um, so you've got these, you know, burning pieces of leaf and, and coal and wood and house and whatever might be blowing across and starting all these little spot fires and those turn into big fires. So how can we protect our houses, um, from igniting. Um, certainly if you have trees that are, that have branches that are like touching the roof of your house, those you want to remove. And that's good actually rodent control anyway, because rats like to use those as their pathways to get into attics and things. So you want to manage the vegetation around your house in such a way that you're not increasing fuel load, but your vegetation is the least of your worries. Most people have junk you know i mean stuff like around the house oh it's a wood pile it's uh um you know timber for the deck that wasn't finished it's gas cans it's um, camping a gear, um, you know, and you don't want to have a lot of stuff around the base of your house. You want to you know, go store that in a storage shed uh, away or, or make sure that you have things um, in your garage well sealed up. Uh, so, so there's a lot of potential places for embers to ignite around your house. And, and that's one of the most important things to watch out for. One thing that I've noticed that happens is people get so worried about this, so worried about their landscaping, Um, And having plants around the house, thinking that this is the main fuel load you have to worry about, that folks end up doing this moonscape type thing where they remove all the vegetation and they just pour concrete or they just have gravel or something like that. And they think that that's going to protect them in a fire. Well, I confirmed it with our battalion chief that that's not actually necessarily going to protect you. And one of the things that we found in the big fires around here is that some houses were literally saved by the green vegetation around them. So a well thought out fire oriented landscape could actually protect your house. Uh, and one of the things we noticed is a lot of really green hedgerows um, that were well managed became heat Uh, buffers um, from as the fire blew through they might catch embers that would have bumped into the house and instead they were caught by a hedgerow that was maybe 20 30 feet away from the house and that the heat wave that precedes the flames also um, these hedgerows protected the houses from those heat waves because sometimes it's not even an ember sometimes it's just the the heat wave that's coming off of the fire is so hot and so intense that it will ignite your house um, just by the intensity of the heat. And so, again, you know, understand your context. Are you living on a ridge? Are you living down in a valley? This is gonna change how you approach your fire management around your house. Fire generally moves uphill. So if you live up on a ridge or on the side of a ridge, then you wanna identify what we call chimneys. And those chimneys are your main fire corridor, your main fire zone. If a fire hit, it's going ru- to ride up that chimney and, and right into your house. Um, so when you have that level of assessment, you can understand the pattern that fire might um, follow in your neighborhood, in your region, then you can start managing and designing for this specifically. And some of the things we're doing, as you're thinking about shaded fuel breaks. So you've got places like coffee park, which is a, which was a a very, um, you know, built up suburb, uh, you know, thousands of homes really packed in, um, your typical suburb. That's different than a somewhat rural neighborhood, like where I live, where everyone has an acre, but there's still a lot of us living on this land. Um, those are two different approaches that you'll have. And in, in my case, in my neighborhood, um, we're, we have the, the ability to think about stopping fire at the edge of our property to think about, um, different ways of, you know, if, if it's planting ponds, if it's putting in ponds and creating some cooling and fire breaks, that's great. Um, we talk a lot about shaded fuel breaks. If you're, if you're in a neighborhood that is in a forested area, then how can you look at shaded fuel breaks um, and ways that you can stop fire? And the other piece that a lot of of fire professionals talk a lot about, and it's really important, is they need access. And if you don't provide access um, when a fire hits and the firefighters don't feel safe to drive up to your house, um, they're not going to do it if it's not safe, they're not going to do it. They're going to let that place burn because they've got other people they want to save and they don't want to put themselves at risk. So, um, so access, which is really about um, having open areas where a fire truck can turn around. If that's, if, 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 if that's the case, or um, having a neighborhood plan as well. Uh, One of the things we've been seeing a lot since the Tufts fires in these, in these more rural communities, they folks are, you know, kind of erasing this concept of private property boundaries where everyone's managing their own properties differently. And we're seeing now whole neighborhoods of people coming together and collectively talking about Um, how they're going to manage the fuel load on their properties, where they're going to put fire breaks, where they're going to put escape routes. Um, I've had neighbors say, hey, if you need to knock down my fence and get through my property to escape in a fire, go ahead and do that. Um, Things like that, where we can come together and have a plan collectively are very, very powerful um, because we're not isolated in this. And you know, our neighbors are, going, are really going to affect us. Right now, everybody should be mowing their tall grasses. And, and that's, uh, you, know, you know, I drive by my local fire department and they've got their little informational signs out there and they say, high weed mowing, be a good neighbor, mow down your high weeds. Um, that is the case. We should all be doing that not only protect ourselves, but to protect each other. So we, we have to come at this, not as individuals, but as communities, as neighborhoods and, um, and create plans. In my neighborhood, we have a map of, um, of the neighborhood and on that map is not just people's information, but who has water tanks, who has ponds, how much water is stored, um, where their fire exits and escapes. And, um, and so, this is the kind of resilience that we need to be setting up. It's not just physical design, it's social design as well to, to give us those um, you know the best opportunity to stay safe in a fire.
0: That's such good advice, and I think transcends just fire preparedness, and perhaps communities that are at risk of flood damage or other types of storms could benefit from collaborating and coming up with community-wide plans and figuring out how each property sort of plays a role in a larger preparedness for the things that most threaten those communities.
1: Absolutely. And and I think one of the big aha moments that we all got during these fires because no, none of us ever thought that Santa Rosa, that's a town where I grew up, got hit hard in the Tubbs fire. You know, we ne- we didn't think Santa Rosa could catch on fire. I mean, it's a there's 200,000 people living there it's a it's a city it's and you don't and you think about like a firestorm is going to blow through there okay maybe a building will catch fire here or there but a firestorm that can't be stopped that's literally taking out neighborhood after neighborhood after neighborhood that that felt like something that would never happen one because we've totally forgot our recent history <laughs> just 50 years ago history two because we haven't had the um, the wisdom to talk to our native people, the native people that are, have been in relationship with these lands for so long. Um, and and uh, and so what that brought up is, in, in, and to your point about natural disaster, about flood, drought, fire, hurricane, uh, earthquake, it's, it's, it's a sobering notion, but none of this is an if it happens. And that's what we need to realize is, it's a when. When is it going to happen? Because these are natural phenomenons that humans don't have a lot of control in stopping. So um, even if it, even if the flood doesn't hit your community for 30, 40 years, if you're in a flood, it will hit at some point. You know, even if your community is never burned, but there's a history of fire, at some point the fire is going to roll through there. It's not an if, it's a when. And as soon as we acknowledge that. Then we can start uh, being smart about how we manage and 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 plan together.
0: Absolutely. Now, you mentioned something earlier too, as warmer weather starts to move up north. It's bringing species that maybe will outcompete or will adapt sooner. But there's a lot of other things to consider, especially in your line of work as an ecological designer. Could you maybe talk a little about designing for lower consumption and perhaps maintenance? As the area that we have come, you know, individually to understand being a part of, you know, whatever classification you may have, whether it's the USDA hardiness zones or just the climate that you have come to sort of rely on as a constant begins to change in whichever way uh, based on your locale is going to, how do you sort of predict that and design for the changes that are likely to happen?
1: First off, as a species, down to a person, we need to become people of the land again. And what I mean by that is we have to go about our days each day noticing what's happening in the natural environment around us, even if you 're in an urban community, um, what kinds of weeds are growing, what kinds of plants are growing, what kinds of birds are there what's thriving what's not thriving um, because again it's all about place, not every place there's so many you know microclimates and soil changes and topographical changes, everything has to be context to place and and I start I start with that because I can see the patterns every single day. I can see um, uh, what's getting hit by disease, what's thriving, when there's a disturbance, what comes in first. It's all is just about awareness. And so first and foremost, if we all learn to become people of the land again, then we're constantly in a communication and a dialogue with the ecology every day, whether we're going to work or school or we're hanging out or whatever it might be, uh, we're noticing the ecological patterns and the plant patterns and insect patterns. And that is the information that's going to, that's the data point that you need to be able to understand the changes that are taking place and how we design for them. So so that's first and foremost. Second off, it has a lot to do with our cultural aesthetic and currently Western culture's aesthetic for landscape is a very English rose garden aesthetic. Very, very perfect lawns and and perfectly managed hedge, um, uh, sh- sh- shrubs and trees and and all of that. And and that aesthetic is very. Uh, I want to say you know it's not very natural. It's not how the natural uh, ecosystem. And when you talk about low impact um, and and when we think about well, how can we reduce our consumption? Uh, a lot of that is a In many ways, and this is counterintuitive again, um, but I've been, you know, it's over 20 years now, I've been doing permaculture and reading landscapes and working with the land every single day. And in the last few years, what I've been really blown away by is how, what actually I need to do more is to get out of the way. Of natural systems evolution um, that often the decision to not do something to not intervene is as powerful or more powerful than the decision to go in there and intervene in a system because in some ways there's a level of trust of uh, the natural ecology to, to kind of have the, the deeper wisdom that we don't have um, to know how to adapt and change to the, the bigger changes that are happening. And so there's a bit of trust in, in the more that I, and I'll give you an example. Okay. This spring as the news about the insect apocalypse started ramping up and the realization that we, we might lose the world of insects in the next 50 years. That's an insane, horrible uh, thing to consider. And I realized that on my little one acre homestead, that I hadn't planted enough early spring forage um, like ceanothus and silk tassel and manzanita um, that would provide forage for bees earlier on. So I was was like, oh gosh, I, I haven't planted enough of these. Um, but then the wild radish, which is a bane of many gardeners around here, because it's a, you know, it's not a native and it grows really proficiently. The wild radish sort of like took over the garden in early spring in February and started blooming. And I noticed that all the bees and butterflies were all over these radishes, like all at the, in the, the second half of winter and into early spring. And that was that realization of, you know, normally I would come out here and I would cut back a lot of this and start to prep for a spring garden. But this year instead, instead of taking that action to go intervene, I allowed that wild radish to more or less take over the garden and held back prepping my spring vegetables um, by probably about a month to allow this forage for wildlife um, to, to have its place. And that wild radish bloomed for months. And it was amazing, all the species. Every day I'd go out there and look at everyone who's visiting these flowers. It was absolutely amazing. And, and that's where I sort of just just you know, had that, ah, oh, okay, you know, nature has a wisdom that I need to trust and the more that I can observe and listen, um, the more I can be in relationship and know when, to take action, when to intervene, like for instance, um, uh, a, a overcrowded forest that's full of fuel load. I would not hesitate to intervene in a situation like that. Um, but in a situation like my garden, when we're trying to protect the future of insects and I'm about to take out the main forage plant, okay, let me not do that. So a lot of it is about connecting and understanding and reading the patterns and, and learning how to, how to intervene and, and not. And the other side is to plant a, a, a diversity, plant and diversity, um, plant a lot of different species and experiment um, in, in, uh, you know, around our houses, around our homes. That's the place to experiment, not in the wild, experiment around your homes, plant a lot of diverse. And I expect a die off, um, you know, in every garden and landscape, I expect certain things to die off. And that tells me something. Um, some plants that I, you know didn't care that much about all of a sudden become the thriving uh, uh, anchor of the landscape and and the provider and so I have a new love for that plant so so a lot of it is about that approach and I know these aren't like tangible you know here's a checklist of things you can do but I think it's this deeper understanding that um, leads us to to make the right decisions
0: I think that's a great observation and definitely one of the commonalities that I've been sussing out through these interviews, especially with people who have more experience and have been doing this for a longer period of time, they tend to shy away from prescribed techniques or things that have actually worked for them and tend to focus much more on pattern recognition and observation. And it's really cool to see that kind of emerge from patterns themselves in the information that I'm getting when I ask certain questions and it's causing me to think a lot more about how interaction within these systems that we either create or that we simply go out and observe ideally in their most untouched form can it uh, give us the information to create more elegant and compassionate designs but also where does technology come in especially as you're operating this on a business level to kind of gather information that either we couldn't observe on our own or would be difficult to kind of compile or create as a data set. I'm talking, of course, like with computers and creating spreadsheets to crunch information. Perhaps uh, if you have experience using drones or mapping technology like that, where do those fit in with the -the on-the-ground observation of nature to help make more informed decisions?
1: They are important tools that we use daily to assess landscapes and provide um, you know, provide those prescription services for our clients. So uh the more that we can under you know, there's a lot of different ways to understand the land and not everyone's going to have uh, you know, to be able not everyone's gonna be able to walk onto a site and and take in as much information as someone who 's been doing that for twenty years can do, and and sometimes the landscapes are really large, and you 're not going to be able to get much in, a, on, in even a single day walk around so so it's a it 's kind of an all the above right um, you 've got your on the ground observation, which is one level you 've got topography and t- topographical maps, which are an essential tool for design and all of our projects that are beyond like suburban scale, we produce topographical maps. Usually, they're overlaid on satellite imagery, and then what's beautiful about that is then you can. let I me mean, at least like with Google Earth, you can go back in time, um, maybe about twenty years in some cases, and see um, satellite images of the last twenty years of that site. But the more that we can understand the history of a site, um, and that, and when we say story of place, that's really what that is that's that's really what we're talking about is okay what what are the patterns here? did fire roll through here at one point or what kind of natural disasters? what were the dominant species at um you know in the past? what kinds of social activities in the industry you know was this logged um are these logging roads was it a, a silage operation where they grew out here for 30, 40 years and mined all the nutrients out of the soil. Um, These are all really important aspects of that that data collection and that initial site assessment to understand soil, water, vegetation, climate. And the more that we understand soil, water, vegetation, climate, now we can start coming up with a prescriptive design plan to move forward that really takes into account the constraints and resources of of that site. So um, drones have become a powerful tool for um, mostly from a presentation point of view, I would say because we also we want to provide pr- professional services for folks, and and to provide professional services means that the materials that we give them, whether it's maps or it's written out notes and recommendations or it's concept plans, we want these plans and and these maps to be professionally done, accurate, um, to scale most of the time and uh, and really born out of an understanding of the patterns in the, in the history, in the natural history of the site. So all, all of that, all, as the technology has gotten better and better, like the drones have gotten better and smaller and cheaper, um, we've been using that technology a lot more and it speeds up the ability to present concepts to clients, to educate them and move um, management forward now one of one of the the challenges that we face in this work is how we educate clients around this um, uh, and when folks who are doing ecological landscape design, you have a choice, and I'm not going to say one way is better than another, but you have a choice you can either provide landscape services to clients based on what the client wants first and foremost um, regardless of ecology and you can build a nice business that way or as you deepen your understanding of a place you can really push a client educate a client to to uh to make the right decisions based on the ecological resources and constraints Um, now that's not always easy in most projects you find that middle ground But the truth is, the more professional your presentation, the more accurate your information, um, you'll have a much much easier time of bringing a client on board to understand like, oh, God, yeah, I probably should manage that bit of forest at the edge of my property because it's a fuel load issue or, oh, I should focus on water catchment, even though I really just want like a patio with some herbs and a place to hang out. Um, maybe I should put a rain garden into that herb garden and maybe my patio should be permeable because of all these aspects related to water. So as ecological landscapers, we're the, we're an edge species right now. And, w- and one of the things that we're doing is we're bringing the traditional process of landscape design and construction, uh, together with the ecological, um, way of managing the land. and. And, uh, and I've spoken about this at length um, over the years, that the more professional we are when we do that, the more effective we are. Um, and if we just talk about the ideal idealism, if we're just ideal and we talk about all these things that you tell a client, you should do this, you should do that because it's good for the water, you should do this because it's good for the soil, but we don't back that up with data, we don't present it in a professional way, um, they're not going to get it and they may not trust it. And, and, you know, and then they might make different decisions. So we are sort of at the forefront of shifting the cultural narrative of landscape from an extractive, um, upon way to a, to a regenerative composed with nature point of view. And, and, um, and professionalism is is the, our main um, our main tool, our main package to to move the mainstream in this direction.
0: along those lines, what of the technology that you use commonly? Would you recommend that someone starting out in this business invest in in order to help them get to the next level and present themselves as professionally as possible?
1: First off, you have to understand yourself um, I, uh, Google Earth everyone should be using Google earth in this work because it's so accessible. And even if all you do is you have a satellite image that you annotate on, uh, you know, you draw some lines on it or you print it out and draw on it that way. Yeah. It's the most simple baseline cheapest thing. Everybody can use that. And even at our level, where I have a seven-figure landscape company and twenty employees, we still use Google Earth um, in our process. So it's so it, it works from beginner all the way to advanced level. So absolutely, Google Earth is is a key tool. And then when we think about design, um, you there's so many options there. Um, and we use in our office we use Auto AutoCAD, um, which is the industry standard for digital. Um, design plans, and one of the reasons why we use AutoCAD is because the architects are using AutoCAD, the engineers are using AutoCAD, and so it it uh, is very useful in using a format that is accepted across various trades and in various industries. Um, because you can now talk with other other professionals, um, you can integrate mapping concepts and um, and build and layer upon each other with that. So we use AutoCAD, but AutoCAD is a is an advanced tool. It uh, takes a, a long time to learn. And I wouldn't suggest anyone starting out that you should jump into that. Um, it's something to work towards. Uh, and so there's a lot of different things out there. There's Dynascape, there's Inkscape, there's SketchUp. Um, there's a lot of different tools. And if folks want to go digital, which is where you're going to pre- be able to create a lot of these professional, um, designs. Um, some of those might be, I think Inkscape is free. So that, that might be a good place for people to start. Vectorworks is another one. Um, so you have to decide if that's the path you want to take. Now for myself, I am not, uh, literate when it comes to digital design, uh, software. I'm not literate at all. I don't, I don't use any of it. Um, it's not my, it's not my passion. It's not my forte. And, and, but wh- what I'm good at doing is I'm good at organizing other people. And so, um, so I always tell my students, you have to know who you are. If you're some, if you're a, if you're a hands in the ground person and you're not it and learning a computer technology just isn't in the cards for you, that is totally fine. It doesn't mean that you can't get to that professional level. It just means that you need to partner up with somebody who has that passion and that experience. And that's what I've done over the years. And now my design, my design department, there's currently three designers, soon to be four designers in my design department um, that are producing these professional quality um, maps. Now if you have drafting skills like hand-drawn skills, that's totally fine as well. You don't have to do things digitally. If you have, if you can do artistic rendering by hand, um, and some sometimes that's even better, depending on the client. Um, a, a well drawn out, um, hand drawn map can be beautiful and artistic and a great way to communicate. So you have to know yourself, your strengths and, and, and ask yourself what you're willing to learn and where you want to go with this. Um, ask yourself if you can work with others, if that's a model that works for you. Because the thing is, when we talk about ecological landscaping, there are just so many different ways to go about this, which I think is so wonderful because I think there's a fit for everybody. You could be the solo designer that has all the design chops and can produce these maps and you could have a whole business, just you doing consultation and design and that's it. You could build a nice business that way, regenerating the planet and inspiring people to connect with nature. Or like me, you can be someone who would prefer to be digging in the, in the earth or prefer to be walking on the soil and, um, and build a team around you to do all the things that you don't like to do, but are necessary. Um, and, uh, some folks, you know, going into the construction side of this is a whole different ball game than just doing being a consultant or in a designer. And it's not for everybody and it's a much more stressful to have the installation, um, arm of doing this work. But it's, it's quite rewarding because you're literally building regenerative system like you're not just conceptualizing it you're actually in there building soil planting trees catching water you get to see the results of your design of your work you get to ensure that it's done right you get to ensure that the impact is the, is the minimum the, the least negative impact on the land um and from a business point of view install uh construction installation generally It has a higher profit margin as well. Um, So it could be more of a financial um, approach. Um, But there's a lot of liability, a lot of stress, you're managing staff, you're managing um, a, a team of people. And so you have to know what your skill level is. And then and then build your business around where where your skill level and your passions are
0: that is another great set of advice there and quite frankly i wish i had heard that when i was first starting out in all of these different types of work because i've struggled with basically every single one of those steps that you laid out as the designer figuring out if i wanted to do my designs hand drawn which was kind of always my skill set from before but also realizing that there's a lot of powerful technology that can speed that along or present things even in a better way and then Figuring out where I stand in in the implementation because in a lot of places that I've worked in developing countries there hasn't been someone else there that uh, That I could either connect with very well or that I could uh, Give these types of instructions over that either had access to The experience or the equipment to implement the designs that I'd put out and by constantly being stretched so thin and resisting collaboration pretty early on Mostly just because I was kind of nervous about it and not knowing like how to manage other people I was held back really early on by trying to do everything all at once. And like you Mm -hmm. said Some people can excel that way They have the the multitasking skills or they just are well organized enough to to play all of those out but The thing that I keep coming back to over and over again is that No one can be very good at everything (laughs) Though yeah. I consider myself somewhat of a jack-of-all-trades, there's a reason why there's a second part to that label, being the master of none. <laughs> <And> <laughs> yeah. That's often kind of disregarded when people try and amass all of these skill sets, especially in a condensed period of time. And there's a certain amount of humility and accepting of limitations that i really wish that i had come to earlier in my career i think i probably would have gotten further and been more of an expert in some of the things that i excelled at early on rather than having kind of a, a competent but somewhat limiting understanding or proficiency in doing all of these other things when trying to deliver the best quality product or service mm-hmm. totally Well, have you found your niche or I mean other than just uh, Advising others on on figuring out what theirs is What are some of the other things that you have kind of found as guiding principles that have helped you get past? Some of these hurdles that you've seen perhaps other peers or people in the entrepreneurial side of ecological design sort of stumble on
1: Mm, I love that question. So there's two important sides to answer that question Um, first off Knowing yourself as much as you can not not everyone feels like they have a path and not everyone feels like they really understand themselves But to the degree that you can understand like where are you excited? What what aspect of this work? Are you excited about? Where do you? Get turned on and it's a little cliche to say but you know, what's your passion follow your passion? Um, This is all about understanding your context of who you are what your skill set is what you're excited about so first off, you want to spend a little time to identify that, um, and and then the other. What I've always done, and I think it's given me an advantage in life, is that I am always setting goals um, way ahead of time. Um, I do a two-year, five-year, seven-year, ten-year set of goals, and once you you know first understand yourself, but go ahead and think about where you want to be in five years with the work like dream big i'm always dreaming big and i think that we it's scary to dream big and often folks don't have the self-confidence to imagine that you can create that dream but it's five years from now so who cares whether you have the skill set now or not um what is that 5 year dream what is that 10 year dream where do you want to be you know write it down work it out what's the world like what's your role in your work what's your role um in the cultural revolution that we're part of <laughs> even if it just seems totally unattainable write that down so this is what i've done for the last 20 years and i I've, I've got my next 10 years all planned out <clears throat> then what i do is i reverse engineer from that okay so maybe i'll go out to a five year goal, and then I start to reverse engineer okay, what are the skills i 'm going to need to get there what kinds of what kind of team would I need to develop? Um, where do I need to be in my business? Where do I need to be physically? Where do I need to be in my relationships? And I start reverse engineering back from that, and as I start to reverse engineer back from my my dreams, um, there's particulars that come into place, like oh, this thing's going to have to happen. I have no skill sets in that. So I'm gonna I know I'm gonna need to collaborate with someone to do to fulfill that. Oh, here's a skill that I need to learn. Okay, well, if I have five years to learn that skill, maybe I'll just start really slowly right now. You know, maybe once a week I'll pick up a book on that subject, or maybe I'll take an online class or something like that. And I'm not gonna rush to learn that skill because I'm slowly gonna incorporate it into my life and my work. I think ultimately what happens, and I did this a lot in my 20s and some in my 30s, and the second half of my 30s, I'm 40 now, it started to shift. And it's this tension between urgency and patience. The urgency comes from the state of the world, it comes from the need to take action now. Um, But one of the things I've found that a lot of us do in Permaculture movement activists do this. Um, people do this in general. Is when we operate from a place of urgency, we may actually create more harm than good in the process of trying to make that change, whatever it might be, because we don't actually have the skills, or the data, or the organizations uh, to to actually make it come true in the in that short time frame. So. There's this side of patience and this, and really it's how you know you I always get inspiration from a from a tree from an old tree or from a forest and i there's a uh, two hundred fifty year old oak tree that I visit um, about five days a week I, I i hike out to this tree and i and I visit it and one of the things that that tree has been teaching me lately as I see all the birds that live in that tree and i I have gratitude for the abundance of acorns it drops and the shade it produces and all the services of carbon sequestration and water filtration and air filtration, all that is that I have to realize, well, you know, it took 250 years for this tree to get here to this level operating at this level. It's not moving so fast today. You know, I'll sit at the base of this tree. This thing isn't running around trying to do a bunch of stuff. Um, It's pretty chill. It's pretty present. So I've shifted in the last few years with my work to give myself more time. And, and, and one, of the, one of the things people have said about me in the past is like, I those into life. And, and kind of what that means is that I'm willing to take a lot of risk. I'll always be willing to take risk. So the combination of taking risk, of following the things that excite you, and yet at the same time, taking time to learn and build skill sets that are necessary to achieve those bigger goals in life, that's that tension that you have to live in. Um, and, uh, that is my suggestion for folks getting into this work is, um, you know, you can move some things you can move quickly on, um, and some things take time and what you need to cultivate the skill of perseverance of patience. We need to cultivate the skill of taking critical feedback because, um, because we live in cultures where we haven't been taught the emotional skills of being strong in ourselves, and because there's so much low self-esteem in uh, in our in our cultures these days, um, technology doesn't help us with that. Um, we we have to um, uh, have the under We need to be able to take feedback because that's what pushes you to learn that shows you where your weak parts are that shows you the gaps and places that you need to fulfill and I think what happens a lot and I did this a lot in my life is that you go out there and you try something and you fail and somebody gives you some critical feedback about it and a lot of people just say I'm not doing that again screw that no not for me didn't give me those, uh, that good feeling. Um, I'm done with that. I'm going to try something different. So a lot of people give up self-rejection before you even, even had a chance. Um, and you know, the regenerative fire is going to burn through you. It's going to teach you a lot. It's going to, it's going to knock you down, but, but that, those are renewal mo- moments. Um, and there's gems in there. So once you let the emotions, uh, you know, feel the emotions that come up, it's okay to feel upset and Whatever, but um, once those emotions settle, then you need to integrate that feedback. You know, integrate feedback, integrate, not segregate. And then you can grow as a person, you can grow in your skill set, and you can grow in your confidence. And like a 250 year old oak tree that's working its magic, uh, if we want to make big, sweeping change in the world and in our lives and as a culture, uh, then we need to have vision that is generational in its scope. And if we want to accomplish vision that's generational in its scope, then we need to realize that it's going to take lifetimes to achieve that. And once you are humbled by that, um, you can breathe into the next step, with, in, and, and the next step, and the next step, and the next step. Um, and you can be in a place of awareness of where you are on your journey, and, um, and where you need to go, and feedback and failure becomes a gift
0: absolutely, man. There's so many things that I would love to continue to explore and unpack about everything you just said there, a lot of which has really rang true in my own experience. One of the main things that I've noticed or kind of sussed out from what you boiled down there is the idea of long term planning and the types in treating this perhaps as more of a marathon than a sprint and the differences in decision-making that that cultivates in a mindset and how you see your ability to achieve or to complete goals in a much longer term sense, especially when you're working with natural systems, ecosystems, which are going to outlive all of us <laughs> and whether or not we are able to design in a way that takes into that much larger, um, time frame and think about setting the foundations for nature to take over and to make the better decisions that we can't predict certainly not from the the smaller vantage point that we're at but before we run too long on these and i'd still like to perhaps schedule another interview or a chat at some point to to unpack this further but great could you tell me a little about some of the the books that you've been coming out with, as well as the educational opportunities that you've been promoting through your different networks and your companies.
1: Absolutely. So at the permaculture skills center, we're the five, a five acre demonstration site in Northern California. We, uh, we have two online courses. Um, We've got the ecological landscape mastery school where it's a full on program to help people, uh, start and grow their ecological landscape businesses, and a, l- a lot of things we've talked about here, we talk about in there. But it's it's really an A to Z of um, design process, consultation process, client management and relationship um and and then you know all based in permaculture principles and ecological principles um how to create your design plan how to present it and then how to move into install how to create budgets how to talk to clients about money how to deal with tricky situations running the business how to manage staff and employees uh, you know all of it all that's under all of that um is is in the eco landscape mastery school and then we do we have like our core modules, um, which have you know, templates, contract templates and design workflow process templates and all that. And then we also have live sessions uh, every month. I do a case study. Um, tonight, I'm actually doing a case study on 160 acre broad acre um, management project that I worked on years ago. Um, but we also do urban case studies, you know, just w- w- a full mix. And then we bring experts in um, to talk about anything from gray water to community organizing to uh, to QuickBooks, how do you run accounting software to carbon farming, to no-till farming, you know, kind of like everything, all the different pieces of design and regenerative uh, and regenerative design, we we cover, and, and all the pieces that are incorporated in in providing those services to others. So that's the Eco Landscape Mastery School, and we have the regenerative agroforestry program um, with uh, Penny Livingston Stark. Um, and that is a program all about regenerative agroforestry assessment design implementation species management um, and we do live sessions um, once every season but all the core the whole core program is there for folks Um, so those are the educational components that we have and uh, I was talking about you know those that future planning and reverse engineering and all that. And so, over the last few years, I've I've written a number of books. I've I've written a a couple children's books. I produced a couple educational coloring books. I came out with a personal development book called Activate Your Joy, um, which talks a lot about some of the things we discussed about self confidence, about context, about. Um, uh, future planning, reverse engineering, all that. And then I just came out with the Ecological Landscape Professional, which is is really a book that distills all the aspects of how to take permaculture and traditional landscaping and integrate them together in a system so that we can create businesses that regenerate the planet and care for people. That book just came out this year. Um, what I'm working on now is uh, – both uh, in the in the world of fiction, um, I'm I'm working on some projects right now that I I, I can't talk too much about them. But um, part of the goal here is. How do we shift co- the culture how do we sh- how do we tell story in such a way that connects people back to nature that visions a new world that visions a way out of the current um destructive practices that we have and and you know recognizing that we are a species of story we follow story and it is in some ways the narrative of our culture are the kinds of media that people are consuming and right now, a lot of the media that people consume are heavily racist, heavily violent, um, dystopian, and so, uh, and so can we breathe fresh air into our cultural storytelling that integrates the tools and the connective way of being that's required for us as a culture to, 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 to find peace again. Um, so those are the, that's my main, main projects I'm working on it. And then this is my first time telling anyone this. (laughs) Um, I also have a big regenerative landscape book that I'm in the process on. So in the next couple of years, probably two to three years, um, those will start, uh, coming out and I'll talk more
0: about them. Fantastic, man. Those sound like really exciting projects and I can't wait to see as they update and, um, and start to come out. Well, again, Eric, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. As always, whenever we chat or catch up, I got a whole lot out of this, and I think it's going to be really important for the audience as well. So um, I'll leave it at that, and hopefully we can schedule another session soon in the future to catch up again.
1: I would love that. Thanks so much for the opportunity, and I appreciate all the good work you're doing.
0: Thanks so much, Eric. Take care. Kay. Bye. 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 Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we share. I'm very grateful to all of you who have added comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info@abundantedge.com. and all of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you again in next week's session.